Gender, it's the issue that we can't seem to stop talking about. In some ways, we can't stop yelling at each other over it. This is an issue that has dominated the headlines. Seemingly came out of nowhere for some and then bubbled up and now it's boiling over. Hello, my name's Brian Lilly and this is the Full Comment Podcast. And today we're going to explore this issue of gender, the rules, where they should be, where they shouldn't be, who's going too far. Are we even talking to each other or are we talking past each other? That's something that I've been arguing for the last little while. And why is the media all on one side about this? Something that we saw when Pierre Polyev was asked questions about this, when he was talking about a completely different issue. The media, when they got to him on this, were clearly on one side. Do you support age restrictions for puberty blockers and hormone therapies for trans kids? Um, I think that uh, Justin Trudeau is trying to divide and distract Canadians by... All right, so is there room for discussion on this topic? Julia Malott is a transgender columnist, a parent, someone who's been talking about this actively for the last little while, and someone that you're... doesn't matter which side you're on, you're going to agree with some of what she says and uh, disagree with others. So, Julia, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Let me start with your assessment of of Danielle Smith's policy. I, I read your column in the National Post the other day. Um, you seem to be saying that you like some parts, but not others. Definitely. It is certainly the most comprehensive policy that we have seen to date in any Canadian province. This is a topic that's been discussed everywhere, but has had legislation that has come forth in New Brunswick and in Saskatchewan, but both of those focus solely on social transition in school or the change of names and pronouns and the acceptability of doing so without the knowledge or the consent of parents. And that is included in the in the Alberta legislation, but it also goes much, much further, moving into the realm of medical interventions of surgery and hormones. It discusses sex education, and it also discusses sports and biological males participating in women's sports. So these are issues that have been hot topics in gender discourse now for several years, but we haven't yet seen them hit the political landscape in the way that it did with Alberta. So there's been lots of commentary. And for myself, I like to discuss them differently because they're not the same. They're all related to transgender matters, but they're different issues that bring in different competing rights and different considerations. Uh, well, let's talk about the parental notification of schools. Um, this is something that, in some cases, policies have been in place, like to Toronto District School Board, for 10 years. Um, and it explicitly says that regardless of the age of the child, and kids start school in age four in Toronto, regardless of the age of the child, uh, if the child says, don't tell mommy and daddy, but I'm transitioning, then they're not allowed to, to say anything. And to me, that is a, a policy that starts with the, the idea that parents are inherently dangerous to their children. Um, and, and so it, it's why I'm a, opposed to this idea and, and supportive of parental notification with safeguards for children who are at risk, um, which I, I believe that uh, uh, New Brunswick and Saskatchewan have. I, I haven't seen the regulations in Alberta. As a parent, where do you come down on, on that? Do you want uh, the kids to... Uh, or the teachers not to notify parents, or do you support notifying parents? I think you nailed it when you said, as a parent, where do I come down on that? And I do have a 17-year-old daughter. She is my adopted daughter. I'm not old enough to have a 17-year-old <laughs> kid myself, but that has given me a unique perspective because I have 
a child who was in the system and I am transgender. I felt this way in high school and I didn't want my parents to know, but my parents also were not abusive. My parents were loving. They were very religious. So I knew the conversation would be very difficult. And I ultimately didn't have it until after I was out of school. But they're my parents and they are fundamentally my ideological steward as long as I am a child in their household. And I think that is what gets missed in this conversation so much is that these children live at home with their parents. That's where they spend most of their time. That's where they get most of their guidance. How do we expect this to work if we're now hiding something in the school, regardless whether we should be hiding something in the school, even just practically, how does that work for the teacher to implement an intervention? All of the other students know, and yet the the, the parents are none the wiser. This is going to come to a head at some point. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to cause more tensions. And it's a violation of the trust that the parent has in the school system to educate their kids. Okay. So I, I, you are in the same position as 78% of Canadians, according to the Angus Reid poll, which is the, the biggest one on this topic. And uh, yet, according to the prime minister, you're spewing right-wing hateful propaganda talking points that are in, endanger children. That is what I find most discouraging about this conversation is that it quickly moves into this place of absolutes and extremes. The, the talking point that most often comes back is to say, but what about families that are truly harmful? What about those families where the kid really will be at danger if they were to come out at home? And I know those families do exist. I think that they are being overblown and we're making it sound like this is far more frequent than it is. But I also know that those households do exist where there might be a bona fide concern. What I don't, don't understand is that we have a solution to this, which is children's aid services. What we have done since the 80s in school is we have instructed our teachers to let children's aid services know if there's any potential risk in a house. They don't need evidence. They don't have to know. They're not qualified to be able to assess that, but they tell children's aid and children's aid has the responsibility to determine if there is a risk, if there is to support the family in mitigating that risk, whether that means removing the children or whether that means supporting the family to work through the issues. And that has worked in every other case of potential abuse. And all of a sudden, when it comes to conversations about transgender matters, we've said this one conversation needs to be different. And if there's even a possible risk of abuse, we need to not remove the kid, but leave the kid and hide it from the parents. And that that just perplexes me because if there's a risk, we should handle it. And if there's not a risk, then we are getting concerned about nothing. It, um, it's interesting that you say there are a lot of absolutes. Um, one of my kids was telling me about someone who had transitioned. And I said, well, who are they? And they told me their new name. I said, well, that doesn't tell me who the kid is. Like I know them as something else. What, well, I can't dead name them. You're telling me who is now transitioning. How am I going to know if I've known this child as Steve for 15 years, that Steve is now Alice? You've got to tell me otherwise. But it, <laughs> it was absolute that could never speak the name again. And I thought, this is this is bizarre. Um, so... I, I think you've zeroed in on something there, though, that within the LGBT movement has had been well-meaning, but it really doesn't work. And that is these, these attitudes that we can't touch things like, as you said, dead names. And not only is it not practical, it creates a way that people can get to you. Like I just tell people I used to be called Jason because you can find that if you want to. And, it, and when people try to hide those things, it can become a weapon that gets used against them. And that's just the reality of it is that I used to be named Jason. Now I'm named Julia. And if somebody wants to use that to try to get to me, well, then they're 
they're an asshole and I don't really want to <laughs> hang out with them anyways. But most people, that's not their intention. <laughs> Oh, and, and, and I, look, it, we're having uh, the kind of respectful conversation that I've been advocating for a while, but there doesn't seem to be it with a lot of people. And, and I'll, I'll admit from the other side as well, from people who are opposed to this, there, there are folks on both sides, don't they just want to yell past each other. And, and we'll get into the politics of this in a bit, because I feel like a lot of the politicians are just um, using this to score wedge points against each other. Uh, what about the kids? And at the end... Because that's mostly what we're talking about are the kids. Uh, so that that's the school and, and the notification issue. On puberty blockers, you did a video. And on, on this, you say there's got to be more nuance. I, you know, hormones are a very powerful thing. They can mess your body up in so many different ways. Uh I, you, even something as simple and benign as the birth control pill can have incredible impacts on women's bodies. And, and that is a low dose. I have real concerns about giving eight-year-olds puberty blockers. What kind of nuance are you looking for in this? I would say the hormone conversation is certainly the most difficult, at least for me. And I don't know where I stand. And I'm prepared to say that because I think it's nuanced and complex. And I don't know what the right way path is forward. And I wish we had more conversations that came from that place, because most of what I see, like you described, are from either one side that says we have to do this, it saves lives. If we don't do this, people will commit suicide. And there's no path forward but to make hormones available to every child who at any point in their life feels that they need them. And on the other side, we now have the talking point, which is these are just too dangerous. There's nothing we can do to have any sort of safety or discretion around how they're used. They need to just go away until you're an adult. And I wish that I could take that second stance because more or less, that's where I stand on the surgeries. When it comes to the gender affirming surgeries, whether that's top surgery or bottom surgery or any facial cosmetic surgeries or otherwise, I don't see much of an argument to move forward with them in childhood because these are invasive. They have all the risks that surgeries can have. And there is not any big loss to waiting. The loss between doing a genital surgery when you are 12 and doing one when you're 25 is you didn't get to have the genitals you wanted for 13 years, but that's it. That's, that's really the only difference. And so I would say we should wait. We should be very sure. And we should do everything we can to make sure this is the right path before we lead someone down. The difference with hormones that gets overlooked so frequently is that if you do not go on puberty blockers pre-puberty, and if you are not on cross-sex hormones, that, that ship has sailed once you're an adult. I'm the perfect example. I always felt this way. I always knew how I felt about my gender, but I did not start transitioning until I was 28 years old. So I was an adult. And that means that I am five for 10. And that means that I have broader shoulders. And that means my voice is lower. And all of these elements of my face and my body structure that at this point are not fully changeable, even if I were to pursue surgery after surgery after surgery, which I haven't done. And that, that's a tough life. So for people who are gender dysphoric, it is easier to do this earlier than it is to do it later. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily in favor of this because, of course, what if they're wrong? What if they have a feeling when they're 12 and it goes away? So I do want to be very, very cautious. But what I find most frustrating in this conversation is that 
the positions that come forward, like we've heard from Polyev, like we heard from Smith, that take a hardline position against hormones, they don't acknowledge this fact of why children want it. They don't acknowledge that when you are like myself and you do transition as an adult, we still live in a country that's pretty cruel to you, especially if you are you know, presenting as a woman, because we have made that mean a lot of things. I was in the news last week for my daughter's appendicitis. She uh, had a really long wait Mm -hmm. time. And I did a number of pieces about Ontario healthcare and the failures there. And I was shocked and disappointed by how many times the conversation went into my physical appearance, whether I am a fetishized pervert, whether I'm suitable to have a kid at all, purely based on my appearance. And these weren't even transgender stories. This is just a parent who's upset with the healthcare system. And as long as that's the discourse we're having, of course, kids are going to desperately feel the drive towards this. And to just come out and say, no hormones are allowed, no blockers are allowed, and ignore what that means for these kids, it's a missed opportunity because we could have a policy that does take a stance on hormones that's either completely restricting or at least very restrictive, except for in pretty clear-cut cases, but pair that with policies that say, and when you don't pass as an adult, it's okay because look at what we're doing to make sure that we can change the discourse. And none of that conversation is happening. How how do we get to that point? Because any opposition to puberty blockers and hormone therapy is met with, then you want kids to die and they will commit suicide. And, And, you know, I've looked at some of the studies on that and some of them are very weak studies. they not the type of thing that we should actually be basing policy on. The type of studies that are enough to make you say, you know, we should look into this further, but not something that you base a a policy as life-altering as this on. I I agree. I completely agree in the sense that things can be overblown, that both sides are using these really, really heavy talking points to, as you said earlier, gain political points, and if not, then at least gain traction and where they want to see these conversations go. And I think that's unhelpful because both sides use the talking point of wanting to protect kids. They want to protect kids. They want kids to be safe. And and I actually believe that both sides mean this. They're just looking at a small snapshot. One side is looking at kids who they know are severely dysphoric, as I was as a kid, and say, how do we protect Jason? Because I was very, very emotionally and mentally messed up after my childhood. And I divorced in my 20s and I was a really bad husband because of what I had not processed. And so I do think that there's something to be said there. But then, of course, on the other side, there's also people who regret these transitions, who have pulled out of it and have taken pathways, who have had surgeries or hormones in ways that they now regret. And that's tragic, too. And I think both of those conversations need to happen at the same time, and what we have instead is one side focuses only on the regret and the risk. The other side focuses only on the dysphoria, and we're talking over each other. I, I think that's what's happening on so many sides here. Um, I've spoken to uh, psychologists and psychiatrists who have uh, dealt with patients who are gender dysphoric. Um, until recently, it was... Uh, they tell me mostly young males uh, and most of them would end up being gay men and some would transition later on, but that they were having, they were struggling with their sexuality and accepting that they were gay men. A couple of things on that. One with the push towards affirming care, they say it's dangerous for them to even examine how the, the patient is feeling anymore, that they don't feel that they can do a proper practice. 
that you've immediately got to say, oh, okay, well, if that's how you feel, let's go to this. Have we have we just taken away? Uh, are we rushing too far towards you know th- this idea of affirming care that you even question? Because it, you've referenced this several times in the conversation. People have feelings. People have questions. People have doubts. Uh, that's part of dysphoria, and you've got to explore what that is. But just automatically rushing to okay, well then here's what we're going to do for you. Is that the right approach? I I love where you're going with that. I have an engineering background, and I did many years of education looking at decision-making and various mathematical and computational ways that we can make good decisions in terms of looking at the data and taking that devil's advocate approach to say, is this the right path forward? Not just, let's do this because this feels good. And that's how I conduct everything in my life. We're currently looking at buying a house. This is in a different city. This would change my whole family's life. And so we're taking that devil's advocate position of, we want this house, but is this good for us? What are the ways this could go wrong to see if we can create a reason not to do it? And this is how healthcare has always worked as well. There's lots of procedures that we can do for bona fide health reasons that have potential risks. So we, the doctor takes that devil's advocate position to say, is it worth doing this complex surgery for, you know, various bypasses and stuff, and, and ultimately tries to land where the outcome is the most likely to be successful. And this is what we used to do in transgender matters as well. We used to not proceed until we were at that point. We would meet with people for many appointments, maybe many years. We would assess where the psychology was at. We would assess where their mind was at in terms of what they were expecting to come out of this. Do they have realistic expectations or do they have unrealistic expectations? And in the end, the doctor would decide how to proceed based on that patient aligned with their fiduciary to try to look at what's best for this individual. You're right, though, that we have moved to a place of affirmation that says, since people define their own identity, no one gets to touch that. And even doing that work to look for comorbidities and look for anything that might be exacerbating the situation is is harmful, and that is discriminative, and we can't do it. And that that does scare me, because people do change their minds. Adults change their minds, and kids certainly change their minds. And if we really want to provide the best health outcomes then we do need doctors and psychologists to play devil's advocate a bit and say, okay, you want to transition. Let's look at all the reasons why maybe you shouldn't. And that isn't because they no one should transition. I believe there's lots of people who should. I am much happier now. And I know lots of people who are much happier now, but that isn't always the case. It's uh, it's definitely a, a different path that we've gone on. And and so it it's one that I, I worry about being... Uh, put into the school system if effectively as well. And then that added element of, okay, and let's not tell the parents. I, I, I just think that that'll lead to uh, bad places. Uh, Julia, thanks for the conversation. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to get your, your thoughts on some other aspects of the, uh, uh, of Danielle Smith's policy, especially when it comes to the issue of sport. I'm looking forward to it. The issue of uh, transgendered athletes in sports, Julia, is definitely a hot topic. It it, it has taken off in the States, uh, more so than here. But we've seen the the podiums where, uh, you know, it'll be a women's sports competition and two of the three people on the podium are biological males. Um, 
video sent to me last week of a women's rugby team uh, and this big beast of a player just knocking the woman over. And he's like, well, that's a biological male. When Smith released her policy, Global News was quick to come out and say, no, uh, science shows that uh, uh, women have the, uh, the, the, um, the upper hand on this, that men are not necessarily bigger, bigger and stronger. It's, a, it's like they closed their eyes and, and said, you know, the opposite of, of what's actually true. What are your thoughts on biological males in women's sports? So for a long time, I just avoided the sports conversation, partially because I didn't care because I am not good at sports. I don't <laughs> enjoy watching sports. Like, this is not a topic that I cared about. And I'm like, oh, people want to keep talking about it. But but then I saw exactly what you're describing in terms of some of the the national level competitions, the most famous, of course, being Riley Gaines versus Leah Thomas. This is one of the swimming. I don't even know which one because I don't know sports, but they're, they're competing at the national level for swimming. Leah Thomas is transgender. And she ends up winning. And people were very upset about that. And I, I get why they're upset about that. Because men are taller on average. Men are stronger on average. These should not be controversial things. That's pretty well known. And at that level, at the professional level, it kind of makes sense that if you have your best trained biological female and your best trained biological male in a sport like swimming, the taller, stronger individual is going to win. So that is a concern. And I, I think it's well it's fair to bring it up and we need to have real conversations about that. I've also noticed that in many of these conversations around policy that usually focus around transgender women, people tend to take this all or nothing approach as though that's a concern. So the only path forward is to say biological males cannot compete in women's sports and, you know, and just end there. And what I like to remind people in this conversation is that, Sports is a lot of different things. National swimming competitions for adults are not the same as a grade seven volleyball team in a school for intramural purposes. And I bring those up because that, I think, is where the real conversation needs nuance. Myself growing up, I felt marginalized because I couldn't be in the social circles I was connected to. I was friends with the girls. They were my they were my friends or the people that I socialized with, but I wouldn't be able to be on that team because I was a boy. And we have to acknowledge that a grade seven volleyball team is not just about competition. It's also about camaraderie. It's about teamwork. And there is an exclusive element when we say, and they're sex-based just because that's kind of customarily how we've decided to do it. Well, I'm look, you'll see a lot of the intramural sports that, uh, that people participate in this city. And it's uh, uh, often it's uh, co-ed and there's rules. You know, you've got to have so many uh, from, from each side. Uh, what I found interesting about Danielle Smith's policy was she didn't say all or nothing. And in fact, I found that throughout. Uh, Smith's was attacked viciously uh, as if she had just stood up and, and said, transgendered people are the worst ever and we're going to chase them out of Alberta. That was not what her, her speech was, the video that she released. And she said that there should be competition for women but we also need to make sure that there are places where everyone can play. And I think that got lost. The idea that you know, weightlifting has become the, the, the most recent one, uh, Canadian female weightlifter is powerlifter is upset because now, you know, she's going up against people that were born and did not transition and or were on puberty blockers. They're huge. They can lift more iron than she can uh i get 
why? So would you say that it, you know, there should be maybe rules around this stopping it at like the national or international level competition or do we nuance? Do we say some sports it's acceptable, some sports it's not? So the the argument with sports always comes down to safety and fairness. Is it safe to have somebody who is much bigger or much stronger competing? And is it fair like, to have like somebody the who's much stronger and much bigger? Like the rugby example, like the powerlifting example. These are these are good examples in, in those domains. And those are well put and those are valid. What I notice though sometimes is that they ignore the fact that you can raise safety and fairness concerns within a sex bracketed category as well. Who's going to win that powerlifting competition? The strongest female. Why is she the strongest female? Because she's bigger, <laughs> because she has higher levels of testosterone naturally, because whatever reason they are, she's she's probably a safety hazard to some smaller women in certain sports. But no one's saying that we shouldn't allow a 90-pound female and a 180-pound female to do other sports together because of safety concerns. Although there is actually, when you look at something like wrestling, that's what we've done for a long time. We have weight classes recognizing that a 300 pound wrestler and a 90 pound wrestler is not going to be fair or safe competition, regardless who's of which sex. That's just, that is a sport where your weight is so related to your ability to be effective in the sport. And I think that is a key to how we should be thinking about this on a sport by sport basis. We've got to look at this and say, does your biological sex have a huge impact? Sometimes the answer is yes. And when that is yes, like we should account for that. Other times, maybe it's not so clear. We've we've got to the place that this conversation has become so charged. It's not even just sports. Last year, the the International Chess Organization, whatever they're called, they said they announced that transgender women can't compete in chess anymore. And when you get to that point, it's like, okay, this conversation's gone a bit wacky because <laughs> that's that's very different. I, I didn't realize there there were gendered categories for chess. There are. And that comes historically because, you know, chess was a men's thing and then there's a women's league and then trans women come into it and now they've been told they can't be in it. And, you know, that I don't see a lot of merit for that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there's never sports where I think there's there's a good argument. Of course, my whole knowledge of um, international high level chess is from watching the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> so I don't know much about Same. it. Um, but, OK, so I think you make a fair point on things like weight classes, uh, safety in fairness and and sometimes it it just isn't fair and so uh like leah thomas versus riley Gaines, i don't think that's a fair race i don't and but but when you look at fairness we also have to say but my daughter's five foot two guess what she's never going to be a world-class swimmer because she's never going to be able to compete with riley Gaines either and so you know we get this conversation where in my mind the way to do swimming competition say fairly would be to have classes that are divided by weight and height because it's not really whether you're male or female it's taller people can go faster (laughs) they can do the competition faster shorter people can't just like wrestling if we did put everyone in one class guess who the best wrestlers are always going to be the people who are not 90 pounds so from just the spirit of inclusivity and giving more people opportunity i would love to see where possible us take more of an approach of classing things out on sports so that the camaraderie of it and the competition of it can be what you know, we focus on rather than just these these silly discussions that we end up upon. I'd like to get your take on the politics of it all, because this is uh, something that obviously appears to be a culture war issue, but it's also something that um, both the left and the right are going at pretty hard on this. I mean, the prime minister's language has been 
nothing short of vitriolic and uh, disparaging to to people who who actually have your point of view on things like notifying parents. So, how do you look at it? Are, are people just playing for votes to? groups out there that they think might be on their side that they might be able to get? Do you think that anyone actually cares about the kids or the issues anymore? Or is it just about the politics? I certainly agree that our discourse around this is not productive. Um, We have been swinging back and forth with the pendulum. And the reason why I got into this and I started being one of Canada's most vocal voices about this topic is because of my fear of where this swings next. When I look back 20 years ago, that was when I kind of had the language to understand how I felt about myself. And Canada would have been a very scary place to transition. There was no protection to make sure that I was remained employed or had any housing protection or anything at all. And I think that was a huge problem. And maybe 10 years ago or so, we recognized this as a country and we brought in some, what I believe are important protections for the rights and dignity of people who are gender dysphoric. However, in the process of that, it also swung very far to the left in a whole bunch of these ways that we've just discussed today. And when I observed this about three years ago, that was when I started to speak up, recognizing that that was untenable. It is unbalanced. It's not going to stay there, but there are plenty of people who want to just pull back all rights for trans people entirely. That is their objective. And they've been lobbying um, within especially social conservative circles to to get wins in that sense. And I have always feared that we're going to swing back too far. And we're just going to end up bouncing back and forth between these two extremes rather than finding something in the middle, which quite honestly is what about 90% of Canadians want. They're, they're not into this issue. They're not obsessed. They just want something in the middle that's balanced, that maintains dignity and respect for transgender people, doesn't go so far as to take away their rights and stewardship as a parent. And that's what I want to see. And I'm not seeing much of it at the political discourse level right now. I'm seeing, like you said, a lot of cheap shots at one another, framing each other's positions like they're more extreme than they are. And that's unhelpful. I I think a lot of Canadians would just simply have a a live and let live attitude if we had rational conversations. Um, But as we've discussed uh, several times, People like to ratchet it up and or or come in with these all or nothing um, stances. You actually said in your National Post piece that if Danielle Smith's policy were a bit more nuanced, it might be accepted. I'm going to disagree with you um, because I think that the activists on the transgender side are just as we won't give an inch as the activists on the social conservative side. And they will say all or nothing we're playing for keeps. I agree. Um, I think that there is a, a small group of pretty extreme and fixated individuals on both of these sides that I, I don't think they can be helped. I certainly can't help them. I've been trying for a few years, but they are, they're very ideologically captured on one end or the other. And if they don't get their way in its entirety, they're going to be unhappy. And and much like issues like abortion or gay marriage that have, I would argue, long been resolved in Canadian discourse, they'll probably linger for a long time and be continuing to, to bring those matters up. But that's not where most Canadians are. Most Canadians are just in this middle spot. They, they have compassion for people like me. They might have concerns with a few things they've seen with our current policy, but they don't want me marginalized. They don't want me to lose my job. They just want us to find some balance here. And I have been encouraged by the conversations that I have on Twitter, where I have quite a following on my YouTube channel. And now that I'm doing a lot more stuff in Canadian media, 
that I regularly get to have these conversations afterwards with people who are just normal individuals who haven't given this a lot of thought and they're just looking for balance. Well, maybe we can find it. Do you get much pushback in the trans community? I do. I do. I, um, I've written, I've written quite a bit about the, the difference in the dissent that I receive from the trans rights activists and from the social conservative activists. Um, I get it from both, which to me tells me I'm doing something right because if both extremes don't like my position, then that, that means I've found something that is actually listening to both sides and not just ideologically captured in one or the other. Um, but I will say that the, the stuff that I receive from people who are not accepting of trans people is more vulgar. It's more personal. The, the, the transgender activists, they do not like the message that I send. They find that message threatening and they, they don't like some of the positions that we've discussed here today that I think would really help us to find some balance. But they don't usually go for me personally the way that I have been attacked by some of the people on the other side who do genuinely have contempt and disdain towards transgender people and have masked it and hide behind arguments of children or parental rights because that's what that's what's politically tenable. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm in no way saying that everyone who uses those arguments is coming from that place. I spend... of my time nowadays in some of the deepest gender critical circles in Canada. And most of them are there because they have these concerns with unbalanced policy and they don't want harm to transgender people. But of course, it has also created good cover for that extreme faction that lives on the far right side. Well, fascinating conversation today. Um, As I said at the beginning, I've I've been saying for a while, we need to talk to each other, not past. You and I definitely talk to each other and, uh, you know, proof that you can have a respectful conversation. So thanks so much, Julia. Thanks for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, what have you. Listen through your Alexa-enabled device and help us out by giving us a rating, telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly. <laughs>